Welcome to Healthy City, Healthy Nation, conversations about rebalancing, restoring, and rebuilding our nation, starting at the local level. Well, good uh, good day, gentlemen. I appreciate the opportunity to um, have an important discussion uh, today with you about uh, police use of force. Um, this was not expected to be our first episode of the Healthy City, Healthy Nation podcast, but um, based on current events, uh, Pastor Copeland, the session you and I had recorded in May, um, we were about to release it the first week here in June, uh, but based on um, the death of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis and all of the protests and activities um, surrounding it and following it, um, I think it's just more appropriate that we actually, I, I think very appropriate that we launch our first episode of Healthy City, Healthy Nation on a conversation around police use of force. Um, uh, by the way, I should have started with a basic introduction. I'm Larry Morrissey, former mayor of the city of Rockford, 2005 to 2017. I'm joined today by Pastor Kay Edward uh, Copeland, who's still a pastor, not retired like myself, right. um, here in uh, Rockford, and also a retired Chief Chet Epperson, who served alongside of me uh, during many years um, in my time in office at the city of Rockford. And so this conversation about building a healthy city from the ground up, um, you know, at some point we'll go into more detail over the course of this podcast series on how I came sort of the, to that philosophical bent about, um, I think, the importance of starting at the local level and building up towards a healthy nation and not the other way around. Uh, but today, we're really going to start, I think, into a really important conversation about use of force that also displays this very uh, same point, which is uh, my belief, and I think our belief, that if we want to improve outcomes related to use of force, we have to understand that what we're seeing in incident after incident, these are really just symptoms of a larger problem, a dysfunction, if you will, in law enforcement that really speaks to a larger dysfunction of governance um, in overall uh, the way our, our democracy currently operates and has been operating. Um, it's my philosophy and I think our philosophy that we're out of balance and that civilian leadership uh, needs to work better with law enforcement at every level of governance, local, state, and national. Um, so with that as a starting point, um, we will jump into a, a conversation today <clears throat> that's gonna be part technical talking about some of the specific things that we did at the, in the city of Rockford to try to improve outcomes related to police use of force. But we're also going to get into really the narrative, the story um, of what happened um, during my first term in office after I was elected in 05, uh, when the chief was new to the job, how um, Pastor Copeland and, I, and myself working with the chief got involved with sort of the use of force conversation and really what we see and saw is some opportunities for changes in governance that could hopefully um, provide some template, um, some options, uh, blueprint, perhaps, if you will, that other communities might find um, supportive of their goals. So with that, uh, Chief, why don't you, uh, uh, or, or Pastor, you want to jump in and maybe provide a little bit more background about yourself and um, how we came to this conversation? Well, <clears throat> let me... Uh just uh, say something ab about the fact how uh, the chief and I met 
because I think that's important in terms of this narrative about community engagement, involvement, partnership. Um, the chief came to, when he first, um, when he first was selected as chief, he came to the ministers, one of the local ministers groups, and basically was just coming to say, hey, I'm the new chief. It's some point, I'm gonna need to trust you. You're gonna need to trust me. I just wanted to come while nothing's really going on and uh, get in relationship. Apparently, he got a fairly chilly response. I wasn't at the meeting, and one of the elders who I respect, a senior statesman in the community, called me after the meeting, said, hey, Cope, uh, we got a new chief. Sounds like he's trying to do the right thing. I need you to go and support him. Whatever it is he was talking about, I don't know what he's talking about, but you go and... <laughs> go and see what you can do to help him. And so that was my entree. Um, I think, Chief, we met over at uh, St. Paul Church of God in Christ, Bishop Washington, and basically the Chief sort of laid out a vision uh, of policing that I had not, quite frankly, uh, heard in terms of, it was refreshing as it relates to, basically he started out by saying, hey, they just built a new jail and they plan on filling it with people who look like you, not me. And I don't think that that's right. Let's figure out a better way. I'm like, okay, this guy, <laughs> he doesn't beat around the bush. He's kind of straightforward. I might be able to, I see why I need to work with him because otherwise, just like the conversation I had about you when uh, uh, Pastor Bland right. introduced me to you, he said, Cope, uh, sort of watch out for this guy because uh, he's trying to do something. So, the whole focus deterrence piece and some of the other policing strategies that really relied on police partnership engagement with community involvement is how I got into this. And I think that's important to mention uh, because I don't know that some of the things that we're going to discuss moving forward, I don't know, I don't know what, that as a community we would have had the stamina or resilience to be able to go through them had the chief not made that first entree right. to try right. to when there was no crisis, let's develop relationship. Chief, uh, maybe you can start, uh, jump in and just uh, uh, give a little bit of background. How long were you uh, with the Rockford Police Department before you became chief and how we, um, uh, our first series of conflicts with the police union, um, what did that, what was that all about? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the campaign that arose from that. Thank you. Good morning. And it's uh, it's a real honor, uh, Mayor and Pastor, to, to be a part of this conversation. Um, known both of you for a number of years. And um, with all that's going on in America today, uh, let me first just say, um, as a former uh, police officer and currently as a consultant around the country, uh, the optics of George Floyd, uh, I don't know the whole investigation, but from what I see, it, it's a very tragic event that occurred from police officers that, that should not have occurred. And um, policing in America today has a lot of work ahead of itself. And I, I, I feel bad for, really feel bad for the family, for the Minneapolis police officers and all, the, and all the officers around the country. At the same time that the demonstrations that are taking place, uh, police really have a challenge to allow people to air their feelings of what, what, what they have to say. And they probably have had to say things for a number of years. I, I don't condone the looting that takes place. That's a separate issue. But the peaceful, the demonstrations that take place, the policing are really 
being challenged today to restrain themselves and de-escalate, not to have to use tear gas, not to have to use rubber bullets against people who want to say something. So given that, uh, yes, um, I've been at Rock 40 in my uh, entire life. I grew up in Rockford uh, here, a graduate of uh, Guilford High School, a graduate of uh, as we formerly known as Rock, Rock Valley, Rock, Rockford College. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do if I um, uh, vision, I did have a vision as a, as a sergeant that I wanted to lead the Rockford Police Department as the chief of police. That was one of my goals in life. And I saw over a number of years, and this is no reflection on any individuals, this is just me personally speaking as a, as a person of Rockford, is that I saw far too many times the department um, marginalized itself against certain um, groups in Rockford. And unfortunately, those groups in Rockford were people of color. They were African-Americans and they, and they were people of brown color. We had pretty good relationships with uh, certain segments of the white community, but the black community, in my estimation, uh, was marginalized. So I knew as chief of police that I needed to get out ahead of that and build those relationships because when you have a crisis what's taking place today, you don't build relationships during a crisis. You have to build them before, because if you build them during the crisis, it's not genuine. You're just trying to get through some some issue, and and, and that's not how you build relationships. Uh, Pastor, I met you with Bishop Washington, but we met prior to that. Um, the first 11 days of being appointed chief of police, we had some eight homicides, if you remember that. And we were marching with ceasefire over off of Auburn Street. And that's the first time that I had I'd met you. And because I'd seen you at a couple of these ceasefire rallies. And I'm like, this guy, I, we're, we're marching. We're, we're wearing out our shoes at all these uh, homicides that are taking place. But I did go to, the, to a local um, minister's meeting to um, show them to um, the things the police department wanted to do. But we needed their help and their uh, partnership. It was a chilling effect, like the pastor said. I, th I believe it was a chilling effect because they probably never had a police chief and a white police chief come to a, a place of color to say, hey, look, at here, here's what I'd like to do. I can't do it alone. I need your help. Um, that's when I was called to go see Bishop Washington with Pastor Copeland and just laid it out and said, these are the things I want to do. And I I'll always remember the pastor, the pastor sitting there. Bishop Washington looking at me eyeball to eyeball, trying to check me out like, you know, what's this guy saying? And I'll never forget that uh, that meeting, Pastor. And, you know, you were you were appointed by the bishop to say, work with the police department. And there's a number of things that we did. Uh, we had great relationships with Pastor Copeland, had great relationships with the mayor on, on how to build relate, how to build the community with the police. There's a lot of good things that, that came out of our relationship and, and also had the opportunity to worship in his church. My sister-in-law continually talks about your sermons. I just had to put that plug into New Zion and, and those were dynamic times. So thank you. For, thank you for that introduction. Thank you, Chief. Now, um, just to jump into the fun, um, because it started right away after you uh, became chief, it seemed. Um, there was a campaign that was run against you by the union called 276 to 6. Um, I don't think we can begin a conversation about changing cultures of police department and police use of force until we get to a very basic issue. And um, I'm just going to come out and say it. My observation after my 12 years in office is that uh, police officers don't want to be managed by anyone, uh, but especially not by a mayor, not by a civilian. Um, and the 276 to six in my estimation 
was at least my first introduction fully to what that really meant and what it felt like. Can you give us a little bit of background about what gave rise to that uh, campaign, what, what it was about, and um, um, sort of how we addressed it? Did we have three hours for that for that answer? That, um, just kidding. So it, it actually occurred prior to that, pro- probably my sixth or seventh day in as chief. There was a high-speed pursuit with uh, some detectives. They, they were uh, staking out an area where there, there was a lot of high crime. There were some shootings. And there was a, a police pursuit with that unmarked vehicle. And they pursued this car for some time and caused an uh, extensive amount of damage to the vehicle. And I heard what the speeds were. And it was an accepted norm that there were sort of two police departments within the police department. You had... You had the police department that had to be managed. Then you had these sort of special groups within the police department. And there was this sort of unwritten code that, "Mm, don't go over there. Just let the special group what the special group wanted to do. I'm like, what? We're all one police department. And what's good for Johnny Jones, if he has to be aligned, then that's good for Wilma on the other side. There's no two separate departments. So looked into that and got, got, tremendous amount of pushback on that. And I remember the union president after the first week or two weeks said, Hey, look, and I just want to let you know, um, things aren't going well. You know, some of the guys are complaining, you know, about voter no confidence. And I said, to him, I started laughing. I go, what? I'm trying to manage a police department. I said, do what you got to do. And I just, just walked away. And that was early on, like I said, the first two weeks, and then it was a couple of years after that. But we had a series of issues. Hold on, let me just stop you right there because I think deserves to be focused on. So, and I'll just provide a little more commentary and, and uh, Pastor Copeland jump in. So uh, there was a, um, this was a big deal, a big campaign. It was, there was a no confidence vote taken. And early on, this was before we had uh, a bunch of shootings of unarmed African-Americans. Um, this was before we had a, a number of, um, in custody related deaths. Uh, and there were some basic things about the core management of the department um, that there was pushback over. And one of the one examples you gave was one that I, you know, you had briefed me on when we were going through it. And for the life of me, I just had a, I have a lot more appreciation for it now than I did at the time. Um, and, and I understand maybe where the history was, but at a very basic level, that resistance to change within the culture there was a um, the different set of rules depending on your rank, depending on your position, potentially within the department. That kind of stuff had been going on and created this culture of, like you said, two different departments or multiple different cultures and things that were acceptable within the department. And so this campaign began a, a no confident vote of was taken. Uh, the vote results two seventy six to six became the name of the campaign. Um, that the community was exposed to, complete with yard signs, uh, blog posts, and ultimately the union president and some of the union leadership essentially told me they'd give me a pass if I um, pushed to have you removed, resign from the department. I told them clearly I wasn't going to do that. And so then I became part of the um, attacks as well. And I think Pastor Copeland, that's when you sort of re-engaged. Uh, right, because if, if I remember correctly, uh, when i first started coming to city council meetings, it was sort of in response to some of all of that. I, I seem to recall something about an officer um, being disciplined. It was two officers that one was being disciplined for like 
watching pornography on the job. And then another one, it was something about, it was some issue of fitness. Cause I can remember being at the city council meeting, having seen the, <laughs> having seen the uh, bumper sticker, Lynch Larry, mm. and remembering, okay, Pastor Bland said, look out for this young man. So let me go over here and see what's going on. Then when I see this sea of cops, and basically all I could get from the argument was they didn't feel like these two individuals should be disciplined. One who was caught, seemed like you put in some kind of system, or I don't know how it was found, but like the person had been watching like 100 hours of pornography while they were on duty. And then another one that was like just unfit for duty. And basically you were just saying they were unfit and it was such a ruckus. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Why are they so upset about trying to get officers who are unfit or not doing their job disciplined? And why are they mad at the mayor? I didn't understand the dynamics at that time, but that's when I entered and saw that this is really um, well-oiled, uh, for lack of a better word, a well-oiled machine because they put together that propaganda, they put together that PR campaign. When I start seeing that somebody took the effort to make all these yard signs and to, uh, they were on the radio, if I remember correctly, didn't we have that talk, those talk right. radio stations at that time, uh, yep. local talk radio and the newspaper used to have, do you remember the newspaper used to have a part where you could have comments uh, at the articles and some of the really vile things that were being said and very personal things that were being said about you too, let me know, okay, well, this is just evil. I don't know the politics and I don't know the uh, things that are going on behind the scenes, but what's happening is somehow another evil. And that's why I started trying to engage to try to support because it, I, it didn't make sense that people didn't want to be, managed, but you're taking my tax dollars and you're not doing your job. Right. So at a, at a very basic level, again, that was sort of, you know, and, and, you know, I could look back now over the years and see how we actually weren't an exception. We were sort of the norm across um, policing in the United States that general, generally civilian leadership wasn't engaging. Chiefs have historically had to be very careful about upsetting the union. And so a lot of thing, basic discipline, whether it was the online pornography that we had detectives uh, looking at while they were in some cases billing overtime, um, or was the use of um, the chase policy as an element of use of force, um, just trying to build basic consistency, uh, reporting and management that involves civilian leadership I now know that is the exception, not the norm. Why? Because it's really hard. You put yourself out there and you're going to get attacked. Right. And just so we can fast forward a little bit, um, we survived that, the chief and I. Um, the union ran a former union president against me when I ran for re-election in 2009. Yeah. I won. I got re-elected. Um, those law enforcement issues were front and center throughout the course of that campaign, um, but I still won by a significant margin. Um, and the union was obviously ran their candidate, financially supported that candidate. Um, but what it told me ultimately in the fact that I got reelected is that at a very basic level, our citizens knew that we needed to make improvement. 
Um, and in the process of surviving that campaign, I now look back and I said that um, that really prepared me, prepared us for when it got really hard. Yeah. So building relationships, getting to know individuals like yourself, um, forging relationships with the uh, minister's fellowship, with uh, people of color throughout the community. Um, I thank God that we had to go through that experience during my first term because during my second term is when it got really, really tough. And if I, if I made the, the strategies that the, the chief was using, um, uh, the, I think we did the drug market intervention over uh, not right. too far from, uh, not too far from ultimately where the Barmore shooting took place. Um, and a few other things, I mean, too many things to talk about right here, but there the things that were put in place that gave people confidence that, okay, at, at least this guy, and that was my initial thing, at least this guy is trying to do right. Otherwise, why would he get so much evil pushed back at him? Not just, you know, well, I disagree with this policy. It was like vitriol. It was like evil, evil. It let me know, okay, we're on the right path here. And that these strategies are helping to build community confidence. So that when we get, by the time we got to the crisis, it wasn't like we're dealing with a foreigner. It's like, okay, yeah, we know you. So one of the things that that we did is uh, right away, we'd have promotion ceremonies. So we'd have new officers that would get sworn in or individuals would become a sergeant detective. Um, We moved those out of the building. We went mobile. So early on, one of our first outdoor ceremonies was at 1400 West State. And internally, there was so much pushback. Like, what are you doing? Why do you want to put it out there? I said, that's one of the most marginalized areas of the city. We need to to have an outdoor ceremony, connect with the people, and they see who we are. Are we we going to wear flap jackets? Are we going to put cops in the perimeter to make sure we don't get shot? I go, come on, stop. This is okay. And so we, we mobilized into the community as much as possible. When we had those uh, homicides, quite a few homicides at the beginning, instead of having a press conference and announcing over the state's attorney's office or the PD that we've arrested someone, we went to where the homicide occurred. We set up a mobile, mobile press conference right in the, the heart of the city, the epicenter, where, where the problems were. Go back and tell the, the community that we got the bad guy, we took him off the street, and we're restoring confidence in your neighborhood. And that's, to me, that is one-on-one basic community policing that to me is easy to do, but somewhere it gets lost in, in America today. Um, well, let, let's just on that point, let's just talk about that for a minute. Um, that culture in which uh, an officer uh, goes into a neighborhood not being of the neighborhood um, and almost uh, potentially feeling like they're under siege or under threat. Um, where do you think that sort of comes from? Um, and what, what did you try to do about it? Well, it's, it starts at the top. It, it, the, the buck, as I always call it, the buck stops with the chief, whomever the chief is, the, and the chief sets the tone, tenor, and tolerance of what he or she is going to expect. Of course, you have core missions, city values, department values, but you just it can't be on paper. The chief has to lead, has to say the right things for the right reasons at the right time, and they have to hold people accountable. And you've got to go out in the field. You've got to say, no, this, this is not a dangerous place to be. They're human beings. 
go out and make that connection in, in the most difficult place in, in the city. Go out there and see where the person's coming from, and they will get on your side. They will help you. They will identify to you where the, where the strife is, where, where the criminals are, if there are any, and build, and build those relationships. But I, I, it can't be just for me or the chief at the top saying that. I, I got out on the field. I went into the areas when, the, when there was a shooting. They called me at 2 in the morning. Instead of just taking the phone call, where chief had got a shooting at such and such location, I got up out of bed and I went to the crime scene. As a chief, I wanted to know what was going on. They called me on all homicides, responded to the scene, and they probably hadn't seen that in a while, a chief getting out at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, but I want to know what's going on. Why did that shooting occur in that neighborhood in that time? So that issue of, um, uh, you know, you're trying to break down sort of a barrier and be engaged in the neighborhood. Um, at a broader policy level, what we ultimately talked about as a city uh, was this vision of excellence everywhere for everyone. Um, because I think what gave uh, culturally and historically, not just in our community, but across the country, we've seen these uh, development patterns that have resulted in you know, vast disparities in a given community of wealth, um, vast concentrations of people of color in one part of the community. Um, we tended to be poorer parts of our community, at least. And so uh, talking about excellence everywhere for everyone was trying to challenge that idea that it's okay to have a good side of town and a bad side of town. Bad side of town typically where um, uh, you would have higher crime, higher poverty, higher challenges, and that's typically not where our police officers would live. Um, and in our case, um, by the time and, uh, we were in collective bargaining, I think we looked at the numbers, there's about 67 to 70% of our police officers no longer lived in the city of Rockford right. at all, let alone the West Side that had higher poverty and higher crime. And so I think we had developed this culture of almost uh, militarizing the police okay. and then uh, serving every shift as a tour of duty. Um, with all of the elements of that, the tensions and the associated with that, as opposed to being d d what you just described, which is being of the neighborhood, of the community. And I think that gave rise um, to a lot of tensions. And, and I, as I've shared, that was one of my first um, uh, sort of coming face to face with systemic uh, racism was the business leaders who would challenge me on this idea of investing and expecting excellence in the so-called bad side of town. In other words, I think they were comfortable with us sort of quarantining that part of the community, yeah. um, containing the negativity so everybody then could go home to their safe part of the community, right? And that's dysfunctional. That became what I really saw as a form of uh, systemic racism enabling uh, this this the status quo, which was high crime, high poverty, a lot of dysfunction. So you, you both brought up uh, culture, and I think this is one of those key aspects of change that people discount for whatever reason. You can have the right policies even, but if you don't have the right culture, you, you're still not going to get anywhere. And I saw it very blatantly, I think it was yesterday I saw a clip, and I can't remember if it was Buffalo, New York, or somewhere, but basically... Some cops were moving down uh, the, the, the street right. and pushed an elderly man. He fell. And one cop was reaching down to try to help his humanity or just whatever. It kicked in. He's reaching down to help him. But then the other cops sort of pushed him along and said, don't, don't do that. So that culture, 
you, you can say there's a policy of, you know, rendering aid to this and other, but if the culture in the department is that, hey, we treat these people a certain way or here, or we're the warriors, to your point, we're the warriors and we're going on a tour of duty. Therefore, we need hazard pay if we go across the bridge or, you know, we need this or that and the other. That's a cultural thing, a cultural narrative uh, that supports that whole containment strategy. We're just going to keep it in, in. We've seen the foolishness of it. Number one, you can't contain. Uh, violence is a virus. Uh, domestic violence helps us to understand that a little bit better because it pops up everywhere. You can't contain, you know, violence. You can't contain crime. You can think that you're doing so, but it, it really breaks every bounds. But more importantly, human beings deserve to be served and protected wherever they are. Because right. you're getting tax money from that side of town. You need to, uh, as you said, that. So I said all that to say the whole excellence everywhere for everyone was a cultural narrative that got pushed down and that helped policy to actually start right. making sense. But you can't have one without the other. Right. And so that really gets the uh, um, to this sort of broader uh, back to the message of this podcast, Healthy City, Healthy Nation. Ultimately, it's my experience, my observation, my belief that um, there's an opportunity to build health within every individual officer, uh, within the culture of a department, and that health really, not in a metaphorical sort of way, but in a literal way, building health, hiring healthy officers, um, helping them to build resiliency, supporting them along their path, is going to result in fewer incidents of excessive force, fewer overall incidents of force in a culture that's um, connected more directly in a healthy way um, uh, with the community. And I would call that, um, there's a term in medicine called functional medicine. I would call this functional governance. In a civil society, in, in, a, in a healthy democracy, you need a connection. You can't have disconnect. If siloed police officers working in an isolated silo community, and then you're shocked when there's conflict because they're not connected in any kind of healthy, organic way. So what we started to do, and again, I would just say this was a result of too often me having conversations with HR and legal officials and uh, departments like the police department saying such and such an employee just got a DUI, now they're facing disciplinary charges, such and such an employee gotten into a domestic, uh, now they can't carry a gun, they're going to have to be discharged from the force, um, they got a DUI, they don't have a driver's license, they're going to have to lose their job. Ultimately, I got tired of those conversations, uh, ha having those with the same people who were in charge of our health plan. Literally, we're spending millions of dollars to take care of the health of our employees. Meanwhile, when they have bad health, we're disciplining them. It's the same part of the organization. So why don't we have a, a, a more a broad-based conversation about building health within our, our um, departments? And actually, that's where I think we've got a real opportunity to build some sort of um, doesn't end there, the conversation, but it might start there. What can we do to get labor and management on the same page with the goal that healthy people will have health, better careers and be more productive and effective and, frankly, less costly uh, employees uh, to a given organization? And Chief, you, I mean, so I think this is very important. You just laid out uh, sort of a pathway forward because both liberal and conservative, Republican and Democrat, there's something in there 
that ought to touch everybody's value. Because if you just look at the amount of money that's spent out in use of force settlements and in, in, in all the other things you just mentioned, man, right. if we work on the preventative side, first of all, recruiting and in our recruitment, you know, doing a better screening job as relates to uh, people. If we have systems in place, and I think Chief, I would like to hear uh, from you about that, the systems you put in place in terms of early warning and how we're going to rehabilitate, that rehabilitate might not be the right word, but in other words, what we've seen in these last few weeks, as more information is coming out about various situations, even the uh, George Floyd piece, you know, when you hear of people having, uh, you know, dozens of complaints against them and really nobody on the force being surprised that, yeah, that's the guy, if we were, nobody surprised that that's the guy that actually got caught up in an excessive force situation. That means, back to your management point, okay, what was done on the front end in terms of preventative maintenance, intervention, and all those types of things, because regardless of where you look on the political spectrum, everybody should agree that we shouldn't be spending X, this amount of money on things that could have been avoided if we've done a better job on the front end. And more importantly, human life and human capital shouldn't be impacted because we're not taking care of something very simple on the front end in terms of making sure that this healthy cop is in a healthy situation and now we can have a healthy community. So I forgot the name of the system, but there was a, you put some things in place as it relates to early warning. And then if I'm not mistaken, there was like, strategies as relates to how you would deal with cops? So, so um, right. So that, that was, it's called, and many departments uh, have them. They just, they, uh, unfortunately they don't manage them, but an early warning system or inter intervention system. Um, so it's very similar, like a car. So you buy a new car and you get a nice car and you never change the oil. Hmm. And someday your car breaks down. And you go to the mechanic, the mechanic says, well, you haven't changed your oil for, for five years. You got a brand new car, you need a new engine. So in comparison, we're, all, we're, we're human beings, we're not a machine, we all make mistakes, but humans make mistakes. And so in policing, there are mistakes that are made. Mistakes of the heart or mistakes of the mind. So police departments, we purchased an early warning system. And what, what that means is um, there are high risk events that occur, like I have to point my weapon at someone, I have to fight with someone, I have to strike them with a baton, I have to maybe potentially use my taser. Okay, those are on the use of foresight. Citizen complaint comes in and says, Officer Epperson, I don't like the way he spoke with me. That's a citizen complaint. I get in a high speed pursuit, that's a high risk. Um, I get sued in court because I arrested Joe Blow five years ago, that's civil litigation. So you take all those, the use of force, citizen complaints, vehicle pursuits, civil litigation, and those are, those are high-risk incidents, right? So then the department says, okay, in order to manage those, how many use of force incidents per year would be acceptable for, for a police department? Let's just put out the number three. So in a 12-year period, Officer Epperson should not have more than three use of force incidents in a year. Officer Epperson gets the first one. Little little management system lights up, and I've got Epperson's name over here. 
and there's a there's a little light that comes on it says well that person just got one so then two months later i get two now the light turns yellow and then i get three in a 12-month period the light turns red but let's go back a second when you look at the lights the lights key to management to say Epperson was involved in, in pointing his firearm at someone. Okay, is it legitimate or not? Well, I don't know. Well, the supervisor has to look at, look at the use of force. Was it constitutionally okay in the Graham versus Connor to actively point a firearm in, in Illinois law? Okay, so it's fine. So that use of force was okay. Second use of force occurs where I have to deploy my taser, let's say on a shoplifter who's resisting. I'm just give me a hypothetical. Is it a good is it a good deployment or is it a bad deployment? If it's it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, it's gonna light up. The key on the early warning system, whether it be citizen complaints or pursuits, does management actively look at each one of those incidents? If it's good, fine. If it's not good, is it a mistake of the mind or the heart, retraining and or discipline? There's where the problem is when we see from a national level, when someone says, oh, yeah, that guy died in custody and this officer's got 12 excessive use of force complaints. The question is, what did the department do about those 12 prior to that person dying? That, therein lies the key issue. And what I find now as a police consultant around the country is departments fail. They fail miserably to actively manage those prior use of force events. They may be all legitimate or they may be all wrong. But, the, but departments fail to even look. Why? Because of things we talked about. Resistance to collective bargaining, resistance from peer pressure. The culture uh, doesn't allow us to, to effectively look at those. I've told chiefs before that have these management systems that don't actively look at them, turn them off. Get rid of them. Because you're, you're opening up yourself even more by having it and not doing anything. You should have it, but if you if you have it and you're not doing anything, you're really setting yourself up for, for a big lawsuit. Yeah, so just to jump in a little bit there, and um, I joke sometimes that I'm not, uh, I'm a recovering uh, lawyer and a recovering politician, but um, ha- frankly, having my background, <coughs> excuse me, having a background as an attorney, um, as we really dug into this, was very helpful for me <coughs> as we were, examining the system um, and building a system. So uh, as the chief said, we built this early warning system that has algorithms built in, pulls in data from your records management system. And based on how you set up the algorithms, it's going to trigger a notice to a supervisor. Uh, But the key is you got to do something with the data and the notifications you have to engage. This is so interesting because it's very similar to how we manage population health in the work that I currently do now, I'm, I would have never guessed I'd wind up in healthcare when I was first elected mayor in 05. Um, but when I left office in 2017, I'm now with a healthcare company. And this is how we manage population health uh, when you're dealing with chronic disease. So similarly, we're looking at factors that put someone at risk. And when we're uh, hired to manage a population, then we're doing proactive outreach. And it's important to note this system that we created, early warning system, wasn't about discipline. It was about maintaining and supporting an officer before it becomes a disciplinary issue. Right. If something happens, there was going to be a separate conversation when necessary about discipline, but these would run parallel. So we didn't start with the position that we're going to be disciplining an officer because we're tracking this data. We want to provide corrective action to ensure that an officer doesn't violate our rules, uh, procedures, or any law. Um, And we've had a lot of success with that sort of a model 
but it has to be exercised. And I'll just add this one point before turning it back over. How did I, as a mayor, ensure that we were effectively working the system? I needed reporting. So uh, as we all know, what we built in our community was a system we call Rockstat, um, our Rockford statistics-based, database way of managing the city. And so as we developed our expertise around use of force, that became one of the elements that uh, we I required that the chief report on. I think we're doing it twice a year minimum for use of force. As, and every month we'd get together and go over issues. There were certainly certain things that we couldn't do in public, but the high-level data around use of force, we were aggregating that data and reporting it out to the public as a way of holding ourselves accountable to our commitment. And I also thought it was a way of inoculating ourselves um, in a time of crisis because we can, with credibility, go to the community and say, hey, we've built this system. We report on this system. We're not perfect, but look at where we came. And as we put those systems in, Chief, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we dropped total use of force incidents by about, I want to say 40% over a five-year period, something like that. Yeah, there was a couple couple years um, it went down. I, I thought it was either zero complaints or one complaint that came in. No, I'm talking about just total use of force incident. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, total. Yeah, it, went, it it dropped down. Which which um, now the the um, some will make the argument. Well, officers are scared to use force because you're you know because you're because you're managing. That wasn't the case. When you're when you manage something, you're able to better you know draw the data. Just like you said. Positive thing I want to go back to the early warning system is that we were able to identify training needs. So is it no? It's not about discipline. We we we're getting a, a vast amount of officers that are alerting because of some training issue. So because of an unfortunate um, uh, shooting death of Mark Anthony Barmore, the department was able to buy a simulator. So we we did a simulation events on contacting with individuals, either knife or OC, but th- these were all training opportunities. And so the early warning system is, um, yes, it, it could it, ca- it could be used as a separate conversation, like you said, for discipline, but the overall arching issue, it manages and how a department interacts with the community. See, I think this is key because uh, this was one of the hallmarks, Mayor, of your administration. Dana, we can't go by anecdote or we can't go by just uh, community narratives that have been just sort of promulgated. We need to look at actual data to to drive our decisions and to effectively manage whatever it is that we're trying to manage. I mean, it's just like, it's literally, it is just like health. I mean, you could, when I go to the doctor, regardless of whatever I say the problem is, they're still going to take my blood pressure, they're still going to take my pulse, they're still going to take all these vital measurements, because what I might think the problem is might not be the problem, but the data will help me to interpret what I might be feeling as well as what I might not even be aware of. Right. So, yeah, just at a very basic level, the decision to manage by data um, and then to be able to publicly converse with your community about that data, you know, I think it was a hallmark of, of my time in office um, but I ultimately became pretty shocked at the lack of regularity with um, communities doing the same. Um, and I just couldn't imagine another way to effectively manage our 
uh, Police Department. Chief, you got a map up in front of you. Uh, I do. It's, it's one of the maps I, I kept in, on a daily basis. If you ever came into my our conference room, you, yeah. this is what you would see. We'd have maps of use of force incidents, um, uh, violent crime issues, parolees, people on probation. Um, you know, you can't you can't manage something unless you, you measure it and you map it. And so, map, mapping was a hallmark of um, not only Mayor Morrissey's administration. My administration is a police chief, and and that, and that's where we put the you know as we said we put the cops in the dots where there was a problem, whether it be shootings, whether it be outreach. We we mapped and we measured everything. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, chief, you had mentioned the death of uh, Mark Anthony Barmore. Um, and I want to make sure that I want to cover that. And then one other specific incident in the time we've got. Um, but um, I remember the date uh, very clearly, August 24th, 2009, uh, when our city administrator knocked on uh, my uh, conference room door. I was in a meeting. He interrupted me and I stepped out. And he said, Mayor, we've had another officer involved shooting. I'll never forget my immediate response was, please tell me it was an officer pool. And he responded, it was. So ultimately, two officers, uh, Stan North and Oda Poole, were involved in a um, death of a uh, young African-American who's unarmed uh, in the basement of the Kingdom of uh, God. Kingdom uh, Kingdom Authority Church in um, in uh, Rockford. It was a basement of the church uh, during daycare uh, service with a bunch of little children and daycare teachers around. Um, extremely tragic um, uh, crisis, uh, an avoidable uh, death. Um, although the shooting itself was ruled justified uh, by a grand jury and the state's attorney, um, we uh, I think used that event, I know we use that event to propel a lot of our reform efforts, um, hiring an out of uh, town uh, consulting group, two former Department of Justice uh, civil rights attorneys to do a full review of our organization and ultimately come up with recommendations. Um, that, uh, that was uh, before the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, a couple of years ahead of it really, but we were dealing with the same issues um, and it was the single most difficult incident I'd say I'd have to, uh, I had to deal with, but it was also um, in hindsight, the most uh, rewarding because I think it led to some fundamental improvements within the police department um, that were needed. And I can remember um, again, meeting in the basement of, Kingdom Authority, Chief, you reached out to all the clergy. Um, we came and you basically said, hey, um, this is what happened. I need you to trust that I'm going to do what's right in the situation. And I'll, I'll never forget, the pastor said, you know what? Because, again, we had done uh, that drug market intervention in the area around that. Pastor said, okay, Chief, I trust you, but these cop, these guys got to go. And basically it just gave a moment of pause. I mean, because really the community could have blown up right then. Uh, like, like Ferguson later or like some of these other cities. But basically because there was some 
relational equity there that allowed uh, the clergy that was involved to just sort of tell everybody, okay, let's, let's wait and see what's going to happen, you know, how the chief is going to address this. I think that's what saved us. A, that's what saved us from being a, na- a national um, flashpoint, really. Yeah, yeah that's, that was, um, as I call my upcoming book, uh, is, was a defining moment. There were 33 pastors in that room that sat on one side of the table and I sat on the other side. It was a very warm, hot day and there was a fan running that cooled me off. And those conversations um, were, well, it wasn't really a conversation. Um, They asked, the pastors asked a lot of questions and there was no, there was no prep time. There was no time to go look stuff up. It was a genuine conversation. And they, and they, they basically told me what they thought about the apartment. And they told me that they trusted me and they trusted the mayor, but there were certain segments of the department they didn't trust. And they were giving me historical, um, not data, but historical stories. Um, and I said, well, this is what I'm going to do. This is how we're going to go about the investigation. And it was three hours long, but that was a defining moment for me as the chief, because, you know, I had, I gone in there and let's just be honest, if I had gone in there, just BS them and, said, I'm, I'm going to do this. And they would have read through that and there would have been marches and more protests and uh, it just would have been horrible. Uh, but that, that was a defining moment for me as a person and as a chief of police. So um, needless to say, there was, uh, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of challenge, a lot of uh, some folks willing to wait and see. Um, the union uh, was uh, very engaged. Uh, they were upset with, uh, the fact that we hired an outside firm to review the department. Um, we also used that and that really propelled our development of our, um, multi-county integrity task force, right. um, which now has been in place for several years. It wasn't until that incident that we actually had the momentum to create it. Uh, prior to that, uh, we investigated our own officer involved shootings. Um, and it's look, looking back, you know, you, you, there's no um, it's no wonder that the community would have credit, credibility questions about an investigation when the same people you work with are investigating your conduct. So this at least gave another outside agency authority uh, by intergovernmental agreement to run those investigations. And that process uh, still is around today, um, which I think did a lot to build a credibility for independent investigation. Um, there's a lot of work that we did. You know, the Department of Justice was looking to potentially uh, file a lawsuit against us on a civil rights basis. Um, I remember talking to you, Chief, talking to um, yourself, Pastor, and others in the community saying, if it's the right thing to do, let's just do it. We shouldn't have to wait to have a federal court order us to follow the Constitution. Right. And so we did that, but I know for some uh, folks politically, it's easier to have somebody from the outside, like a court, tell them they have to do it. But I think that builds internal resistance. That is one of the reasons why departments never fully change their culture, because reform becomes something of uh, an outside force pushing you instead of internally you pushing out, right? right? And it becoming genuine. Yeah, we we contacted um, the Department of Justice. And when those mediators came down and we started having those, I forgot how often we would have the meetings. It seemed like they were interminable. I mean, <laughs> get a lot of them, at least once a man. month. 
Yeah, it was at least once a month. Right. It was very eye-opening for myself as well as the rest of the community for number for a few different reasons that have I learned some lessons that have helped me uh, on other issues. One, this idea, even as we work with uh, mayor, even as we've worked with some educational things and some things we talk about, this idea of just getting everybody to the table in a structured way where it's not just uh, venting or we're not just uh, making anecdotes or whatever, but we're at the table and everybody feels the peer pressure, not peer pressure might not be the right, but the political pressure to stay at the table. Right. You know, even uh, some of the other things we did with re-entry, this whole thing of the pressure to have to stay engaged when there's some reluctant uh, participants that really need to be involved. That was one thing. But then it was eye-opening just to see the what the actual culture, cultural narrative was inside the department. And some of the things I could never understand in terms of why there was so much pushback against you, Chief, once I saw the actual characters and had to sit with them at a table. I don't know if you remember that one time. I can't remember what even happened. But, you know, the whole uh, police contingency just got up and left the table. I can't even remember what the comment was that somebody had made. But the idea that, wow, you really don't consider yourself, some of them didn't consider themselves as part of the community. Right. We're trying to work this thing out. And uh, it was some simple comment that somebody made. And, you know, it's like, well, we're going to take our marbles and go home. They got up and I was like, wow, these are the guys that are serving and protected. Right. So that they, was the, what you're, you're talking about were those, um, again, very frequent meetings with the Department of Justice mediators. Um, we ultimately never um, finalized an agreement. We talked about it. We made some progress. I think there was some benefit to it, but there was resistance significantly around the table when we brought stakeholders from the community, stakeholders from the police union, obviously management, my office, um, yourself, Pastor. Um, those were some tense, tough meetings. Um, and, you know, I think there was value to it. The problem is if we as a community don't sustain those types of difficult conversations on our own, once the mediators are gone, then it's really to, easy to slip back into our own tribes. Right. And, and uh, culturally, again, get back to this system where we're just enabling uh, the same patterns. So my big fear right now in the country um, is that once the protests go away, um, it's easy to post a hashtag, a, a, um, a meme, uh, make a comment that you're against racism, are you willing to show up when the police union's pushing against reform? Right. Are you willing to show up when you're trying to improve officer health and safety and invest in resources to support that, that, are, that cost money? Um, are you willing to, uh, uh, as a business community member, demand that data on use of force be shared with your community, that you invest in an early warning system and you manage that early warning system? This is the grind. It's not sexy. Right. right. But if you want to avoid crisis, you've got to be willing to engage when there's no media around, there's no press conferences. And that's where I see our country most at risk because it's the, the, the uh, in our experience in, in chief, I want to now turn to sort of the, the final stage of our time together um, in the Lloyd Johnson incident and talk about that because I think it really illustrates what we're talking about, the difficulty in sustaining it all. 
Um, maybe, uh, so I'll just fill in and, and you guys could uh, add it, your, your commentary to it. But um, for the, the president of the local chapter of the NAACP is, uh, was a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Johnson. Uh, Lloyd, who was very versed in constitutional policing, we built, built a very close relationship with him, hosted events inside City Hall in partnership with NAACP over the years. Um, he got a knock on his door one evening um, from our police department who uh, had gotten a call, turned out to be uh, um, not based on truth, but a call that there was a need for a welfare check to check on Lloyd's son. And um, Lloyd, knowing his rights, knowing that these uh, officers didn't have a warrant, was concerned about it. And because he knew you, Chief, he called you, right? He did. And as a result of that call, you um, uh, uh, advised that you were sending a supervisor and ultimately you did send a supervisor, right? Correct. And then ultimately the situation de-escalated. Supervisor came on scene. Uh, Lloyd ultimately brought his son out, saw that everything was okay. And that was the end of the evening. Correct. Until what happened next? Well, I also want to just include a couple um, a couple of foundation materials I think that are good. So Lloyd Johnson uh, not only was the local NAACP president, he was also a part of the mediation process with the Mark Anthony Barmore. He, he was right. heavily engaged in, as you said, Mayor, constitutional policing, meaning he wasn't pro-management pro or he was pro-union, he was pro-constitution. And that may have ruffled some feathers like, well, you know, get on our side. No, he wasn't on anybody's side. The second thing is um, because of the, the shooting, um, we were able to enact some of the things that the um, agreement had said. One of them is we, we established a portal. So there were, there were people in Rockford that were reluctant to file a complaint against a police officer because they were scared to come to the police station. They were scared to come to an old dingy building find a parking space, have to go through all the security. And quite frankly, it was intimidating. So Lloyd said, chief, can you set up a portal? We have a couple of complainants. This happened, this occurred more than once. They were at the NAACP office and our investigator would go there and take the complaint. So now let's go fast forward. It was uh, Lloyd calling me about 1030 at night. I saw the phone call come in. I said, well, I'll just let it go into voicemail. Figure he's going to call about something. Oh, the other thing I wanted to uh, point out after the Mark Anthony Barmore, because of our relationship with the police department and the NAACP, he was called on any officer involved shooting and he responded to the scene, stood outside the perimeter, but at least the police department communicated to him as to what's taking place. So then his phone starts buzzing up. Someone got killed. He can put out good information, accurate information, as opposed to, well, this is what I'm hearing. No, I was there at the scene, and this is what the chief told me, and this is what I saw. So look, that was a good relationship building with him. But he called a second time, and I thought, well, I better take this call. He sat on the phone. I had police officers at my house that want to get in and looking for my son. And I said to him, well, are they inside? He goes, no, I'm not going to allow him in. I said, well, then don't allow him in. Because if a, cop's got, if a cop has a right to get in someone's house, how do we do that? crime in progress, I can see it, imminent threat, you know, somebody's being killed or I got a warrant. Those are the only three ways you can get someone's house. You can't just kick somebody's door in for not one of those reasons. 
So I said, I'll call for a supervisor. Supervisor responded. And then it was the next day. Then the police reports were written. So, that I, so a supervisor responded and it was de-escalated, right? It was de-escalated. He didn't know where his son was. His son was upstairs. He had an uh, issue with his ex-wife and him that, that occurred 12 hours previously between his wife who lived out of state and his son. And then she calls the police 12 hours. Left. So it wasn't even an incident that it was, you know, occurred. It was some hours ago. But in any event, the officers had left the police report stating that I told that I told told Lloyd to tell the officers, you know, just just leave the area. That's not what occurred. So fast forward, the union files a complaint with the Fire and Police Commission. There is a hearing in front of the commission. I think I I I think there was like five days or six days. You know, we stopped it. We started it. It, it was several hours. Oh, by the way, uh, the city legal director doesn't represent the chief of police. So I had to go out and get my own private attorney. But the city of Rockford paid for that attorney. The city taxpayers of Rockford, Illinois, paid for that attorney's cost. So let, let me let me jump in just for if I can. So just to put into context, uh, this hearing was multi-day. It actually ran over the course of three or four months, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Cost the city a lot of money. Um, but the biggest issue wasn't the cost of the financial cost, I think, to the city. It was at a very basic level. The question was, is the chief allowed to manage the police department? If the chief of police can't intervene to de-escalate a situation of his officers, if he can't do it, then who can? Right. That's that's the way I saw it. So this was arguably the most important fight that I had to maintain the integrity of management of civilian and uh, your leadership over the department. If we lo- lose that battle, if the union is allowed to manage the chief and not the other way around, that is to me the, the definition of systemic failure, right? Structural failure. Uh, uh, there, there is at that point in time, no leadership. So I was confident we would win. You would win, but you should have never had to go through it. That's very the, fact, the very fact that the union was able to cause all that chaos and disorder. And ultimately, as we know from the, you being put on trial, I, 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 by this time, 2015, when it, the trial was going on, um, Black Lives Matter was in full force. Right. And I thought to myself, how could we be the one tone deaf place in the country where the chief is being literally put on trial for conflict avoidance, de-escalation, and saving a potential tragic event from occurring? And now the real kicker. You do this work, you're put on trial, and as a result of it, our local paper called for your resignation. The editorial board. Yeah. Did several aldermen call for you to resign? And to me, that's again what you know. Uh, uh, I don't know where other people get their playbook, but I, I only have one play in that playbook when it comes to that. I've got to protect you, go out and support you, which I did. Um, but it was what was shocking to me is the silence of the business community, the willingness of many of our council members to go along with it because they wanted peace. It had become too much rancor. And what I try to tell people, if you're looking for a compromise and a draw, the status quo is to sustain structural racism. If you're trying to change the system, then you can't 
allow there just to be a middle ground. There's right and wrong in those situations. Right. And if you're not on the side of right, then you're supporting and enabling the systemic failure. That's exactly right. And it, it was very striking to me, uh, along all the levels you just described, but just viscerally, like you said, Mike Brown, the whole Mike Brown situation was in 2014. Right. This is 2015. So we got to go through all of this because he did what kept us from blowing up as a community. I mean, again, everybody was tender around that time. Right. So you, you mean you're going to penalize somebody for de-escalating a situation according to how the Constitution says it should be done and then lie on top of it. See that, again, I keep coming back to the moral component, the lie, okay. The, the whole basis, the complaint was that you put the officers in danger. Huh? No, no. <laughs> Everybody went home. And matter of fact, I, re I remember Lloyd talking about it because I can't remember who the supervisor was that was sent but Lloyd knew the supervisor because of all the interaction we had had. And when the supervisor got there, it's like, hey, Lloyd, you know, and Lloyd's like, hey, so-and-so, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. They worked it all out. Everybody went home safe. Right. So the lie, that's what got me, just as a, a, poor, a person of, you know, we talk a lot about the community's moral voice, that the lie that not only they told, but that the paper and, you know, some of our elected officials were willing to just sort of stomach but for political reasons, and let's be honest, for financial reasons. I mean, you, you don't want to, Democrats don't want to miss union money, you know? And so the unwillingness to really call it what it actually was is really startling to me. And I really was appreciative of the fact that as always, you know, both of you just, you know, stood your ground and whatever. I tried to come up, <laughs> Once again, <laughs> because I was assigned, I came to, you know, some of the uh, hearings. Just so I could sit up there and, you know, be seen. No, no, I support, I support what's right. And this, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Never should have had to go through any of, all, any of that. I, I wanted to make a point, and this came out in Lloyd's uh, interview on TV and also in the testimony, and it was not refuted by the union president at the time. The union president called Lloyd and said, we need you to help us out. We want to get rid of Epperson. Mm. That was in the testimony, and that was on camera interview with Lloyd Johnson. That was remarkable that a, that, that was said to the, to the well, Lloyd, Lloyd wasn't the complainant. Lloyd needed the help. But the union president saying, just go along with us. This. This, this is our opportunity to get rid of Epperson. Wow. Right. So, you know, what was... Um, what was sad to what was sad was that we were fighting that, and it was very lonely. There wasn't a lot of people backing us up, so that nobody died right, right. Um, if so, if someone had died, if God forbid you know uh, Lloyd or his son were injured, then we would have had people showing up and protesting, and a lot of people um, fired up, maybe doing hashtags saying it should never happen again but trying to sustain a system that actually works and leadership that supports doing the right thing. That's why it's harder. Yeah. Cause there's, there's not going to be as many cameras. There's not going to be this righteous indignation, but the, we lose these battles of reform when you don't sustain during the course 
of the grind, when there isn't cameras, when there isn't protests, when there isn't marches, who will be there to support reform? And so my message to the business community, civic organizations is, you want to avoid what we're going through right now? You got to show up every day. You've got to demand some of these basics that we're talking about to be instituted within your department and be, and this is why I say we don't really have a financial challenge um, or a, um, uh, uh, a technology challenge as much as we have a governance challenge. Yeah. So that's where pastor, you and I did a lot of work on collective impact. Um, You know, thinking differently about how organizations, multiple organizations work together Police use of force is really one of those areas where that I think is open to a new model of governance, similar to what we did successfully in some education endeavors and homelessness, what we did uh, with collective impact. And so it, it's about sustaining some level of organization over time um, that you just, I mean, you cannot sustain the type of protests that we're going, uh, that are going on right now forever. Right. And so what happens is a lot of people know they can just wait them out. That's right. That's right. So we need to do something that's structural that will be there when the protests are over. Well, some of some of the community in communities will think just make it go away. That this is this is just going to go away in two weeks. We'll that's just right. go back to normal. There there is not going to be a normal, and and now's the time to strike. Not now's the time to hold elected officials, police chiefs, and police agencies accountable. It's the citizens and the residents of communities that now have the voice. Take that voice to action. You, but you, see, you hit it right on the head. It's this, it's this, it's citizenship. That's right. what's going to save the day. It's, it's right. not waiting on somebody else. It's not, it's not this, uh, I think you called it a codependency piece uh, that we have. It's recognizing, okay, these people elected officials, whoever it might be, work for me. And I have a management function and to the extent that they're unwilling to be managed or supervised or overseen, that's the extent to which they no longer need to be in that position. That's right. right. And I, I think the, um, actually, you're reminding me, one of the things that came out of our local protest uh, group, uh, Rockford Youth Activism, that I loved them, one of the demands that they had, one of the points they want to see accomplished is that there is broader shared responsibility over safety in the community. I love it. I think that's actually the heart of the solution. Uh, having a healthy, safe, prosperous community can't be the charge solely of government, let alone just the charge of the police department. It'll right. never work because right. that then, in a, that, that's the codependency. That's where we say, well, let, the, let them handle it. I'm just going back to my neighborhood on the other side of town and let's empower the cops to do whatever they have to do. As long as I don't see it. Right. I don't mind. Keep it over there. That's right. And I I remember, I remember when we, you know, uh, body cameras aren't, I'm not against them, but I remember saying as body cameras and video of, of policing started to um, become more prevalent. said, if that's all we're doing, then we're just going to record a lot of bad policing. And we see that happening today improving the actual policing is moving to this shared model. And you actually literally have to have uh, be reviewing the data with community members, letting them become informed about elements of a collective bargaining agreement that might need to change. And then if you're a Democrat, I happen to be independent. I don't really care what your political persuasion is, but I'll tell you within the democratic party, at least in Illinois, seething just beneath the surface has been this tension between our people of color 
and the labor uh, organizations that everybody kind of wants to avoid uh, because they want their candidate to get elected. And that's why they tolerate the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's why politicians try to manage the status quo as opposed to pissing off one or the other sides and moving towards change. We, I think, demonstrated that you can do it on an individual term of an individual mayor or chief. The problem is you can't sustain that beyond. If you, if you, if you haven't built systems that go beyond the term of a mayor or a chief, it's not. That's it, right. It's not sustainable. That's right. Now, unfortunately, um, the models that we were trying to implement before you left would have gotten us down the road on that. We just couldn't get the buy-in from the business community for whatever reason, because Again, if, if we don't have a table whereby political and peer pressure, people are made to stay there to work on solutions and not manage dysfunction, then we're always going to keep coming back to the same spot. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen, in, or what we've seen at least subtraction, I mean, it's not perfect, but we've seen it work in the, like you said, the uh, veterans homelessness piece, the education piece. We were trying to get it, you know, as it relates to the crime piece. Quite frankly, actually, a guy has written a book. If you read this book called Bleeding Out by Thomas Apt, he basically makes our argument for us. Mm-hmm. He basically is saying that we need to take part of his book is taking collective impact uh, principles and trying to apply it to the whole crime piece. Right. But the point, however, is that this idea, see, c- culture is not going to change without constant pressure. That's just bottom line. It can't be just this uh, sort of lurching from crisis to crisis. It has to be something that is drilled down over and over again in a structured way because we have this pressure to stay at the table and actually deal with actual facts and evidence as opposed to our cultural narratives. So that's really probably a a good uh, uh, point to uh, start to wrap things up. you know, ultimately, it's about a Healthy City, Healthy Nation. This podcast series that we're creating is about creating a, a new governance structure, one that starts from the bottom and builds up. And ultimately, it's about shared ownership. It's not saying that the federal governments and state governments don't have a role. We all do. But currently, we don't have a governance structure that allows us all to work effectively, building on our strengths. And it's just got us out of balance. So right. what we're talking about, and again, the collective impact principles that you and I have uh, became versed on, have used successfully in a couple different areas. We actually made a proposal to bring those, uh, just to take our existing structure when we were working on education and say, let's add public safety to this agenda because we all, we got all the people in the room, right? Mayors, county board chairs, business executives, civic groups. We were operating at policy level, operations level, tactical level. We had them all there. But the reluctance of the business community, mostly, to take on public safety was, uh, I was shocked by it when it happened. Looking back, I understand why. It's just really hard. And that's why we generally, it's, you know, it's, it's why efforts to intervene with an addict fail because the family members don't want to do that hard stuff. They love them, right? In the name of love, they won't do the things that are necessary to save them. Yeah. So what we what we have to push past is this idea that we may ruffle feathers, we may upset people, because ultimately the charge that we're involved with is going to be good for everybody. 
And that's why we're missing it. We're not loving and caring if we're unwilling to take on these really difficult conversations. I see. I see. Well, let me ask one last question before you get ready to go. Chief, as you've been going around the country uh, consulting now, you know, looking at it from a different perspective as opposed to the day-to-day grind of police chief, where do you see or do you see hope? Are there pockets as you travel or as you have your antenna up, as you sort of take the periscope and look up and around, do you see any pockets of hope? Do you see any things that you say, you know what, uh, man, if that can be scaled up or man, I hope that really works. What, what's your general perspective? Yeah. So, um, and, that, and that's a good question. So the, the pockets of hope that I see come from unfortunate situations like um, and what happened in um, Minneapolis with George Floyd. It's a, that's a very unfortunate. Um, it, it seems in policing, something bad has to happen for something good to happen. I hate to say that, but that's just the fact of reality. And I would encourage communities, uh, civil rights organizations, activists, not looters, but people that want to effectuate change, don't stop keep the pressure on, make it uncomfortable for elected officials, for government officials, and they need to hear the voices of the people. And there lies where you'll see change. Because if this just kind of goes, look, some people in the country today just want this thing to go away. And they can put it back in the closet, you know, put, put the genie back in the bottle, and we'll stuff the bottle and we'll wait for another crisis to happen. So I, I'm encouraged by what's taking place in the country from a civil from a civil end, keep the pressure on the chiefs to make the changes. And the, the, the hope that I see is that some chiefs will come around and mayors and they'll say, you know what, that really makes sense what they're talking about. Right. You know, we've, we've forgotten some of these pockets in, in the communities. Let's see what they have to say. It was a mayor. I've got, if you've got people that say, hey, we, we want a piece of the pie. Hey, you can have a whole pie if you want it. <laughs> Are you kidding me? When I was chief, if I had people in a neighborhood that said, hey, we want a piece of the pie. Well, how big of the piece do you want? I'll give you as much as you want. So I think there's encouragement from that, from the groups that are out in the communities today. Just keep it civil and uh, work with the elected officials. But again, the, the, the chiefs and the elected officials, to answer your question, the, the hope is that they'll see some good out of this and take for what the people are telling you. The people are upset about things in the country today. So we have to put our big listening ears on and we have to have actionable items that come out of this. And pastor, I would just uh, close by um, actually quoting you and uh, pastor Steve Bland, uh, paraphrasing you when you used to say uh, our community wasn't so much divided as we were disconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the tools and the pieces are all in front of us. The actual management steps necessary to um, improve a department, the governance ideas, things like collective impact that are out there, but we're not connecting all the pieces. So that's why we're having this conversation. I think there's an opportunity for us to connect the pieces and to share our learning with others. I see good things happening um, in pockets, good things happening in our own community in pockets, but the governance challenge is still there. In other words, we're not connecting the pieces. The business community is still, they're talking the right talk, but they're still disconnected. 
almost like having these two gears that are running simultaneously side by side, but they haven't connected, right? You need a governor of some sort to bring them together, governance, that's really where the word comes from, to connect those pieces so that they function effectively together. So that's why we're having this conversation, this podcast, Healthy City, Healthy Nation. Let's continue this conversation over the coming weeks and months, invite other people to the conversation. I'm looking forward to learning and sharing as best we can. Um, I'm just a civilian now. I've got opinions um, and a lot of experience, as we all do. But ultimately, um, I think we all can add value and be part of improvement. Um, By definition, I think that's what a lot of protesters are asking for. So I look forward to continuing the conversation with you folks in in the future. And let's keep the ideas brewing. Thanks for getting us together, man. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Safe out there. Thanks for joining us today. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode of Healthy City, Healthy Nation.